Welcome to this episode of the Talk Neuro to Me podcast. Today's topic is vestibular migraine. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Talk Neuro to Me podcast. My name is Dr. Freddy's Garcia, and today we are joined by Helena Esmond. Uh, Helena is co-founder of Vestibular First, a medical device company making infrared goggles. She's been a vestibular clinician for over 10 years in hospital, home-based, and outpatient physical therapy. She has passed her Emory competency-based vestibular course in 2015, and she's also a board-certified neurospecialist, which is an NCS. Helena, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Dr. Garcia. Thank you so much for having me today. Well, we're excited to have you on the show. Today, we're covering a very specific topic. We're talking about vestibular migraines. So I love learning from the guests we have on the show. So I'm excited to learn from you about a specific version of migraine. But let's just talk about migraine in general. How common is migraine? That's a great question. So unfortunately for those who suffer with migraine, it's very common. And in the world, about 12% of the population suffers from migraine. 12%. Wow. So there's a lot of patients out there looking for help. Definitely. In fact, it's more common than diabetes or asthma. Oh, wow. I, I, I'm surprised by that, actually. Well, wow. Hmm. Maybe it's because I live in Florida, and Flor- Florida seems like diabetes is everywhere, unfortunately. We're like one of the fattest states. We've not not the not the title we want to have, but we, we manage it. Well, let's talk about vestibular migraine then. So if migraine is very common, and I'm astounded by those statistics, how common is vestibular migraine? So vestibular migraine uh, occurs in about 1% of the population, and that comes out to about 70 million people worldwide. And interestingly enough, it is more common the further you go north, essentially, uh, throughout the world. And there's some theories and research about uh, genetic changes that happened as people migrated in the early years uh, of human uh, evolution, and that the genes that were changed as they migrated um, allowed them to tolerate cold better, but unfortunately also seem to have increased the risk for migraine. Wow. I mean, geez. Again, I'm surprised by all of this. So 1% of the population, again, another huge group. Well, how do we know, well, I guess, what does it look like? What are their signs and symptoms? What are these people saying? Like if somebody's on your table and they're saying, I have X, Y, and Z, do you know what it is? What are, and you know it may be vestibular migraine. What are, the, what are they going to say? What are their signs and that's, symptoms, I guess? That's a great question. So when patients come into a clinic uh, with complaints of, vertigo that can last seconds to minutes to even hours. So there's a wide range of timings. In addition, they're talking about nausea. They're talking about um, some other symptoms you should ask about they may not think to mention. Are you sensitive to light? What sets you off? Does walking into that Home Depot really get you going? Um, People who are sensitive to sound as well, this is called phonophobia, Sensitivity to light is photophobia. And then we have possible other neurologic symptoms, tingling of the face or extremities that might come with this vertigo. A lot of patients, although not all, have some sense that it's coming. And this is sometimes called uh, an aura, this kind of pre-aura, this prodrome, this kind of early phase of migraine where they're saying, oh, 
yep, something's not right. It's t- I can feel the tipping point. So these folks really know that it's coming, and there's a sense of that. Uh, as they start to develop, unfortunately, uh, a pattern, they're getting this with some frequency. For some folks, it may be only a few times a year. Others may be getting it several times every week. So it really varies. Um, and then, of course, headache. Everyone thinks that migraine equals headache, but that's not true. Migraine equals a cranky brain, as I like to say. So this is a sensitized brain uh, that gets overreactive or sensitive to stimulus. And so a headache may accompany some of these other symptoms, but not every migraine is going to include a headache. And this is an important dif- differentiation. Hmm. So as I hear that list, it uh, makes me ask the question, what are we really looking at when we say vestibular migraine? Is it a vestibular disorder with like a, with like migrainous symptoms or is it a migraine that's causing a vestibular concomitant or is it like a hybrid of it like this them together is what the diagnosis is or how you arrive there does does my question make sense it makes perfect sense so ultimately vestibular migraine is a vestibular problem because we have vestibular symptoms that means i'm getting dizziness vertigo imbalance and ultimately the vestibular system is not just uh, our sensors in the inner ear it's the network between the inner ear, the nerve that goes from the inner ear called the vestibular nerve and connects into the brain and any point in that system, including the brain, if that's kind of our source of problem, the result can still be a dizziness symptom and that's how we define a vestibular problem is that parts of the brain that handle vestibular information are not doing well or are getting um, sensitized in this migraine state. Hmm. Okay. Um, so this sounds complicated, right? Because you have a lot of, for lack of a better word for it, moving parts to this condition. Who is co-managing this? Because it's complex. Because it's not like, to me, I see this is multifactorial, if I could say it that way. I think it's a good way to say it. It seems like a very multifactorial condition because of all the systems involved. So who are the players in co-managing this type of condition? That's a great question, and I think anyone suffering from migraine and vestibular migraine especially uh, would do well to have what I'd call a team. So members of the team could include a neurologist, Mm -hmm. and that person is usually responsible for um, prescriptions of possible medications to help reduce the frequency of migraine. Mm -hmm. You also would likely want to have on board um, an ENT or, or an audiologist if there are any hearing changes. So unfortunately, it's confusing because migraine can kind of look like other conditions. For example, Meniere's, uh, which is an inner ear autoimmune, they believe, problem. Mm-hmm. It's not a really a well-understood pathology, um, but it can, again, have these episodes of vertigo and some changes in hearing. So when you have an audiologist and an ENT on board, they can test the hearing and see if it's normal. And then if it declines over subsequent episodes of vertigo, that really leads us towards Meniere's, as opposed to if it's staying consistent, that leads us towards migraine. So it's a nice differentiation when we involve that group in the team. Other members of the team should include uh, someone to help with your symptoms. So um, we know that headache can be a part of this, and sometimes manual therapy uh, by a chiropractor or functional neurologist um, certainly could be helpful in reducing kind of your day-to-day symptoms or the frequency of your symptoms as well as stress management. We know stress is a major trigger of migraine. 
and it's hard to avoid all life stress because I can't help if, you know, there's a change in my work status or, Mm -hmm. you know, a family member is ill or passes away. You know, these are stresses that are normal in life. So we need to have stress management tools. Um, And in addition, a possible team member would be a physical therapist, someone who can assist uh, with things like balance issues and um, both functional neurologists and physical therapists with proper training can do a good job in helping with some of the ocular issues that come up. Right. That's great. And that's what a lot of the care consumed education is all about, right? It's that brain-based approach to, to helping these types of patients. L- let me ask you, because I want to go back to something I asked before, because it's, it's still a little amorphous in my mind. Sure. What is the best way to really distinguish vestibular migraine from just the vestibular disorders group and the migraine group? Because I got from what you're telling me, you're educating me on, I know it seems to be like a hybrid type of disease. Um, what are the things that you need to do to really distinguish it from the other ones? I, I guess a, I'm looking for the specificity, specificity in the diagnosis, how to get there. Right. So the good news is there, um, there is a set of criteria, uh, diagnostic criteria that were uh, set forth by the uh, International Headache Society and the Baronet Society, which is a vestibular group, Mm -hmm. in 2013. And their criteria are very specific in that um, they require that there is a history of migraine, which means if this is your first migraine coming in the door, it's going to be very difficult for us to know that you're having vestibular migraine. Um, Once we establish a pattern where you have had multiple episodes, then the diagnosis becomes uh, a little bit easier. Um, we're looking for some vestibular symptoms that are moderate or severe. Again, they can last from minutes to hours. Big uh, kind of indicators follow up with headache, which we've mentioned, and the headache often needs to have specific characteristics. It's usually only on one side of the head, and I've had plenty of patients describe that to me. It's right always on this right side, my bad side, that sort of thing. Um, it can be pulsating in nature. Again, it's usually moderate or severe headache. This is the kind you have to sleep off. This is not just a light headache that you can kind of go through your day with typically. Um, And it can be aggravated by routine activity. Um, I've mentioned the sensitivity to sound and light. That's another criteria they're looking for. And then um, a possible visual aura. So that's specifically um, bright, scintillating lights, zigzag lines. It can obscure your field. Your field looks blurry for that time period. But again, this comes and goes. It's not always there the way an an eye problem would be um, because this issue is happening at the brain level. And then they're looking for at least five episodes fulfilling the criteria that includes these symptoms of vestibular vertigo, headache, those things I've just listed. So again, we need a pattern. And then they have to really differentiate other disorders. So that's kind of a rule out, you know, we have to rule out Mm. other things. So I'm looking, you know, to do my physical testing, uh, which would include an ocular motor exam. I'm looking at eye movements. I'm looking to see if someone has positional vertigo or BPPV, which is where crystals go out of place in our inner ear. Um, The bad news is that that is more common in people with migraines. So they could have both. (laughs) Um, But you know, I'm kind of trying to really differentiate if they're only getting dizziness when they change position and they're never getting it kind of with a trigger associated, things like that. So you're really listening to that history. You're looking for those patterns. Um, and frankly, I've had doctors who actually prescribed um, 
what they call an abortive med, meaning take this at your first sign of migraine and see, does that make a difference? Um, if it doesn't, that doesn't mean they don't have migraine because unfortunately not every medication works for every person. So it, it, it can be challenging. Hmm. All right. Got it. So the, you get there with the diagnosis by one, they got those, those vestibular symptoms, but then they're going to have that pattern of like the headache, the light stuff, the aura. And once they got that pattern and then you have to rule out all the other type of headache disorders, and then you could arrive there with at least some certainty. That's, that's Correct. complex, but it makes, it makes sense to get there. Hey, you started talking about exam. Um, and obviously we know that a, a physical exam, a neurological exam is going to be part of this. What are the types of tools you're using? Or is there any specific elements of the examination process where you're like, uh, hey, this is a tool that I, I use with uh, consistently if I think, I suspect this patient has this. For example, you, you talked about an oculomotor exam. Now that can be done in bedside manner. But is there any tools um, either for bedside or technology that you employ uh, commonly for this? That's a great question. So I think the most important tool in my toolbox with this group and with most vestibular patients is my infrared video goggles because those goggles allow me to see what's happening in room light mm -hmm. before I put them on and then compare that to what happens when they're in the dark. So we know there are certain findings. For example, with BPPV, I expect a very specific pattern of eye movements with certain positional tests. And often the eye movements that you would see are suppressed in room light. So if I do those tests in room light, I'm not getting a clean or clear result as to whether that was a true negative. Whereas if I use the goggles, then I'm able to see, you know, is that really truly a negative test? Or actually there was some mild nystagmus that came and went with some symptoms, which would be um, kind of fitting that BPPV pattern. Um, other tests um, that I like to use that are very simple um, you can use a 100 hertz vibrator on one side behind the ear, and that's called an vibration-induced nystagmus. That helps me determine if someone has a peripheral hypofunction. That would be a differential diagnosis um, from uh, migraine or BPPV. I also often use very simple tools like a pen to test convergence. I'm just looking to see how the eyes draw together and doing macular motor exam. So not everything has to be, you know, super involved, but I think... Uh, it's good to have certain tools available to really differentiate um, kind of central, as we call it, or brain problems from uh, more of the peripheral inner ear problems. Oh, that's that's beautiful. And it, I'm actually looking forward to uh, the goggles because we, we have a set coming in. We finally ordered them, so I'm going to be checking them out. I may do a video about them soon, so I have to, may even do an unboxing because I love doing that type of stuff. So thanks for mentioning that. Um, all right, let's start talking treatment. Um, the way I see it, there's like got to be, there has to be a two-prong approach to this, to this multifactorial problem. Where does physical medicine play a role in the treatment of vestibular migraine? What can be done there? Sure. So, you know, once I know that a patient has, has seen a neurologist, they have been given whatever medication is appropriate, although some patients do not need medication to manage this, and that's good news. Mm -hmm. However, we know that this you know, again, can kind of flare up as they are exposed to different triggers, like weather changes can be a common trigger. And unfortunately, we do not, do not control the weather. So, um, you know, things like manual therapy can be really helpful because headaches, 
particularly can be kind of worsened by neck issues and we feel dizzy or feel bad. We don't want to move our heads so our neck becomes, you know, stiff and less mobile. So it really can be very symptom reducing to get some good manual therapy, both with soft tissue for the muscles, working on posture, uh, working on moving in any um, restricted joints, uh, working on the strength of the neck muscles to kind of be able to hold the head in a better posture, um, flexibility if that's needed. So, you know, individual to the patient is always the best treatment. And then you really want to kind of um, hit on some of the physical um, kind of muscular and, and bony alignment situation to really reduce symptoms. All right. So we know the physicality of, or the structure of the patient can be a stressor and kind of be an issue for them. Now let's talk about the brain-based mechanisms or or the clinical neuroscience approach to treatment of vestibular migraine. What would a clinician do in that area to help this patient? So it's very important to treat to your exam and also understand that there are some things that we'll see in an exam that would be abnormal, but that, you know, are not necessarily going to affect how uh, the patient feels. So it's kind of a mixed bag. But I think the best thing is to, you know, for example, if I'm testing someone and I find that their ability to draw their eyes together, that convergence is impaired, uh, which is very common in patients with migraine. You know, we know that patients need to be able to look near and far to look at a computer screen and look at their phone. And if they're doing that, you know, on repeat and they're finding that the eyes aren't teaming together well, perhaps some simple ocular motor exercises can be useful. And sometimes I will employ those if I feel they're very involved or the patient has a history of a uh, maybe a, what they call a lazy eye or strabismus, that sort of thing. I also tend to refer to a neurooptometrist as another great team member I failed to mention earlier. Um, you know, so, you know, really kind of addressing these ocular motor issues. And there are great systems out there, gaming-type systems, some of them are more geared towards concussion, but I think that they really have great applicability to our migraine population and our vestibular migraine population in particular. So that's a key um, component of treatment for this group. And then, of course, if they have any balance deficits, um, which, again, can kind of fluctuate depending on where they are in their migraine status, uh, I always want to optimize balance to make sure that we can improve their safety and, you know, if they're feeling more connected or grounded, as we call it, and that's a, a training that we might try where we kind of teach them to feel their body and increase their awareness of the what we call the somatosensory or our body sensing position system, right? So all our joints have these sensors and tell us where we are. If we can plug into that, literally, I think of this analogy of having them think of themselves plugging into a wall, into an outlet, and just kind of, all right, you're really well seated, you're totally connected, so that they can plug into kind of either a seated or standing at, with a wall at their back, pushing their feet down, you know, those kind of strategies to help them reduce, you know, their feelings of symptoms. Because even when they're optimally medically managed and they're really, you know, getting good sleep, that doesn't mean they won't get a migraine. So, you know, we want to give them as many tools as possible. And then finally, there's something known as habituation. And this is a bit controversial because some people feel that, you know, if you expose people to a really bright light, that that's going to drive them right into a migraine. But you don't want to cross that threshold. On the other hand, it's not realistic to live in the dark. <laughs> mm -hmm. So we need to kind of expose in a gentle and gradual way our patients to some stimulus um, situations that may be you know, provoking to try to get the brain to get better at handling that stimulus. So I've done kind of different 
um, treatments um, where the patient has to kind of either view or do an ocular motor activity with, for example, a checkerboard background that might normally kind of bother them or make them feel a bit dizzy to try to get them to get um, better at handling that visual input and so that it's not so bothersome anymore. And now they can go into the grocery store and look at the busy, you know, aisles that are packed with different kinds of cereal boxes and mm-hmm. not start to get dizzy from that. Um, so uh, that's a habituation uh, type training that uh, a vestibular clinician could provide. It kind of reminds me of like a background contamination issues. We start using like the checkerboards and stuff like that. It's a common approach we use. You ever use optokinetics for any of these patients? Kind of give them that type of stimulus, see if they can handle that? Definitely, definitely. So motion can be a big issue in handling visual motion. We call it visual vertigo sometimes. Uh, so I have a, a great resource, um, Gabrielle Pierce, who's a, a physical therapist. She was a student at the time. She built this wonderful YouTube um, channel that has a variety of videos that kind of hit on um, kind of common trigger type <laughs> challenging um, movement situations. So looking at a pattern carpet as you walk over it or um, passing through trees where the light is coming through and there's shadows, that sort of thing, um, driving. There's great videos I love to use on her channel in particular. Oh, thank you so much. I'm going to have to check those out on YouTube. But what was her name again for, for the people yeah, listening at home? Oh, yes. Sure. It's Gabrielle Pierce is her name. Oh, excellent. Thank you so much. Oh, I'm excited yeah. to look into that. Yeah. Well, you know, I, that was great. I actually learned a lot. You gave me a lot to think about. So, Helena, thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate you sharing your knowledge with us about this vestibular migraine. If people, uh, the people listening at home want to learn, uh, want to find you or learn more about you, where can they, where can they find you online? Sure, Dr. Garcia, they can find me uh, on my company's website, Vestibular First, as well as uh, the website for where I treat, which is called Advanced Physical and Aquatic Therapy, and that's located in both Springfield and Broomall, Pennsylvania. And uh, I just want to thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to discuss this complex condition that can be very challenging to diagnose and to treat, but, you know, if patients are, you know, willing to work with their clinicians and, and kind of explore and do a bit of trial and error sometimes, I think they can really see an improvement in their life. And that's what we want to see. Well, yeah. And we appreciate having you on and, and sharing your knowledge. And thank you for uh, sharing your contact so our scholars can find you again. You know, a couple of times you mentioned BPPV. So I think if you, if you can do it again, I think we should have you on and we should talk about that. How does that sound? That would be great. Yes, BPV is also a challenging uh, condition, but one that can be really successfully treated. So I'd love to talk about that. Oh, excellent. So let's schedule that up. All right, Helena, have a great day. Thank you, everybody, for listening to the show, to the Talk Neuro to Me podcast. Until next time, we'll see you then. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to make any suggestions for any future podcast topics, please visit the Contact Us page on careinstitute.com.